Good morning, church. Good morning. Wow. Good morning online. Good morning of those that are worshiping with us in person. My name is Kendrick, and I'm the lead pastor here this morning. If you go ahead and grab your Bibles and click or turn on the book of Acts, we are going to continue our study of being a witness for Jesus to everyone, everywhere. Over the last several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Acts as we have looked at examples of witnesses in the early church, examples of men and women sharing their faith. And this morning, we're going to continue this journey. We're going to continue this walk on looking at what it means to be a witness to G- for Jesus to everyone, everywhere. This morning, specifically, we're going to be looking at how to be a witness to the uninterested. How to be a witness to the uninterested. And these are people that are just going about their lives. They might know that you're a Christian. They might not know that you're a Christian. But the truth is, they really don't care. They really don't care. They'll say things to you like, well, you do you. They'll say things like, oh, if being a Christian makes you happy, that's great for you. You just keep doing that. And when we do start to talk to them, when we do get the opportunity to share Jesus with them, They'll give us a simple like head nod or thumbs up and walk away, right? They don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. They're not rude about it. They just don't want to do it, so they walk away. Do you know anybody like that? Have you had any conversations with people that just don't care about Christ? They don't care about following Jesus. I know a lot of them. I meet a lot of them all the time. And what I have realized is that often sharing Jesus with the uninterested is a lot more difficult than sharing it with the people that oppose the gospel. Because the people that oppose the gospel will oftentimes let you share the gospel in your argument or in your debate. And here's the trick. We can't change hearts. God changes hearts. Our only job is to share the gospel. So when we are talking with somebody and we get the opportunity to share the gospel, whether they believe or not, guess what? We were obedient. We win. That's what we are commanded to do, to share the gospel. Sometimes sharing the gospel with the uninterested is even harder than divine appointments. As Tim taught last week, sometimes God is moving in somebody's hearts and he opens doors. And if we're just aware of where God is working and where Jesus is working and we come alongside and we share the gospel in those divine appointments, people are going to follow Jesus. That's pretty easy. But what about just in our mundane daily lives when we are just going through life and nobody is trying to start a fight with us? God hasn't revealed somebody's heart to us that he is working on, but we are just going through life. How do we share Jesus with those people? How do we share Jesus with people that we are working with on a daily basis that just don't care? They're just not interested. This is a tough question. But as we look at the early witnesses in the church, as we go back to the the first church, as we go back to Acts, the book that we've been studying, we see some lessons, some things that we can learn on how to be an effective witness to people that just don't care, people that are just uninterested. But before we jump into Acts chapter 16, I just want to catch you up to speed, catch you up of where we are in, in the text, where how this passage fits into context. And what we see in Acts, when we begin in Acts, is that Jesus ascended and he commanded his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we looked at this, that the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the disciples and they begin to preach the gospel all over Jerusalem. They face huge opposition. We read that Stephen became the first martyr for his faith. 
And then we start to see that the church starts sending out missionaries. They just start sending them out all over to the ends of the earth, through Samaria and Judea. They're just sending them everywhere. Then we get to Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we read about Paul's first missionary trip, and you see it up on the screen, up to the Galatian territories. And so Paul is a church planner's dream. Here's a big area. There's no Christians there. There's no churches. Go start churches. And Paul goes on his first missionary trip. Then in chapter 15, we read about the Jerusalem Council. And really what the Jerusalem Council was is it was the first ever church business meeting. And all the leaders of the church, they got together and they started talking about what is church membership and what do you have to do? What's the purpose of church membership? And we read about that in uh, 15. Then, directly after that meeting, we see Paul go on his second missionary trip. And what he's doing is he's taking the minutes of the meeting to all the churches that he planted on his first missionary trip. In Acts, we read this. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And then while on this trip, if we continue in verse 9 of, of Acts 16, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So being faithful witnesses led by the Spirit, Paul and his team, and his team at this point we know it consists of Silas, we know it consists of Dr. Luke, he's the author of the book of Acts, and we know that at this point it consisted of Timothy who had joined them just recently. So they are traveling, they get this vision by God, they get on a boat and they head to Macedonia. When they arrive in Macedonia, they head to this little town called Philippi. Now, Philippi was the leading city in Macedonia. It was the capital of the, this Roman district or this Roman colony. Philippi was uh, the capital. And when they get to Philippi, they don't waste any time. They head straight to the places of prayer. There was not a significant Jewish population in Philippi. There were no synagogues at this time that we know about. However, archaeologists have unearthed possible places of prayer, right? And the possible this places of prayers were God-fearers. They weren't Jews, but they were people similar to the Ethiopian eunuch that we looked at a few weeks earlier. They had come to know of the Israel God, and they were worshiping the God of Israel. And we know that there was this place, these places throughout Philippi that they would gather and that they would meet and they would pray and they would worship, they would fellowship and they would study the scriptures there. And one of these times while they're visiting these spots, they met a lady named Lydia and she became a follower of Jesus. And many people believe that she would go on to play a significant role in planning the first church in Philippi. If you fast forward to the end of chapter 16, you see in verse 40 that a lot of the believers used her house as a gathering spot in Philippi, and they believe that was the beginnings of the first church there. And during their time in Philippi, a demon-possessed slave girl started following them around as they went to these places of prayer. And as this, this little girl followed him, she would yell, These are the men of the great high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. We don't know how long she did this, but she did it day after day after day. And Paul, man, he hit his limit. 
And he didn't want people to think that this demon-possessed woman was one of their partners in ministry, one of their partners proclaiming the gospel. So he just turned to her, and he looked at the Spirit, and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And Scripture tells us that the Spirit came out at that very hour. And before we start judging Paul, we start trying to figure out, like, why would you do that? It sounded like she was saying something true. Well, it's kind of like you being afraid to put the little ichthus, the little Jesus fish on your car, right? Because you don't want people to think that the driver you is on mission with the Christian you, right? You want to try and keep those separated as much as possible because people will look at the driver you and sometimes the demon gets behind the wheel, right? Sometimes, and so we just try to keep those things separated, But anyway, we see this slave girl's owner. They become furious. They are so upset. What they were doing is they were prostituting her spiritually. And she was making them a ton of money by telling fortunes that the demon was allowing her to do. And when the demon was ousted, they could no longer exploit this girl to make them rich. They're really upset. They're they're really upset at Paul and his team. And so they go to the magistrates. And the magistrates in this town, they were responsible for maintaining civil order in the Roman colonies. Right? And they, they go to them. The owners go to them and they say this. You can read it in um, Acts 16, chapter 20. And she's, the owners say, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, to keep them safely. Having received his order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And when we read this passage of scripture, we're not sure why only Paul and Silas were arrested. We don't know why Timothy and Luke were not arrested. Maybe they just weren't present at the time. We're not told in this passage. Some say they weren't arrested because they were Gentiles. We're not sure that's the case. We know uh, just prior to this, Timothy got circumcised. We know that Timothy's mom was a Jew. We know that Timothy is referred to a Jew in other places in Scripture. So I'm not sure that that's the case. Here's the truth. We don't know. Right? What we, we do know is that Paul and Silas were available to be seized, they were available to be arrested, and Scripture tells us Paul and Silas were arrested. So that's what we know. But it is right here, it's right in this passage that we begin to witness to the uninterested. How did they do this? And then for right now, as we continue in this passage, I want you to forget about the opposition, forget about divine appointments that they had with Lydia. Let's just focus on the jailer. Let's just take this morning and just focus on the jailer. Here's the truth about the jailer. He doesn't care what Paul and Silas are talking about. He has absolutely no interest in them at all. The magistrate says, put these guys in jail, and he does it. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't argue. He doesn't say, well, let me hear what they say so I can determine if I think. He simply puts them in jail, and his job is to make sure that they are there when the magistrate asks to see them again. So even though they've been beat, he goes ahead and he puts them in stocks. He doesn't care. He's got other things that he wants to do. And we have to be careful when we look at this. These guys that beat Paul and Silas with rods, they were not just some street thugs. They were not just some hooligans. These guys were professional rod beaters. In Latin, the word that they were called was lictors. And this is where we get the expression, getting your licks. It was from this group that would beat these prisoners before they went in. 
their backs, the backs of these evangelists, Paul and Silas, their backs were, were reduced to nothing more than a swollen mass of lacerated skin and dried blood. Were the stocks really necessary? The jailer doesn't care. That's not his concern. Right? He has a job to do, and he's going to do it. He simply is not interested in the pain of Paul and Silas, in the theology of Paul and Silas. In his mind, he's got some Greco-Roman wrestling match he wants to get back to watching. He wants to know the latest update on his gladiator. The truth is, if I really had to think about this, if I really search, I think the only thing that he's really, really interested in is learning if the quarterback's going to play for Green Bay or not. That's all he is focused on at this time. He could not be more disinterested in Paul and Silas. He puts them in jail, and he goes on with his life. Then beginning in verse 25, here's what we read. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And here's the start. Here's the beginning of how to witness to the uninterested. We worship when it doesn't make sense. Right? We need to be a wonder with our worship. And looking back, when we look at this package, we say, oh, this is easy. We have hindsight 2020. We say, oh, they knew that God was going to rescue them. No, they didn't. It wasn't that too far in the distant past that Stephen was stoned. It wasn't that long ago that James was executed simply for his faith in Jesus. These men had no reason to expect that their lives would be spared. But Paul and Silas, they didn't know what was going to happen, but as they laid there beaten and bleeding and in in stocks, they sang God's praises anyway. It reminds me of the early church father Tertullian. And he said this, this is in the first century, or second century, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. God's glory exceeds their miserable circumstances. With hearts focused on heaven, they worshiped. They continued praying, they continued singing, and everyone in the jail and everyone outside the jail heard their worship. The legendary Southern Baptist preacher A.T. Robertson noted this, He said it was a new experience for the prisoners and wondrously attractive entertainment to them. With worship and singing praises from the bowels of this miserable and this vermin-infested pit, Paul and Silas provided some light to those in the darkest places of their lives. Their worship appeared to be even more dramatic than the earthquake that would soon follow and as the earth shook and chains came undone, the prisoners listened to Paul and Silas as they said, stay in place. What glory this must have brought to God. Anyone can praise God when things are great. But what about when your world is falling apart? Can you still worship the creator and truth and spirit when things aren't going the way that you planned? I want to just read to you this passage from Psalm and listen to this heartfelt praise. In Psalm 71, beginning in verse 10, it says, For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. The psalmist goes on to say, May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace, and may they be covered who seek my hurt. 
But I will hope continually and will make praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Even as this guy's people are plotting to hurt him and do him harm, even as his world is falling apart and he puts his heart on God and his heart is bound in heaven, he remembers the countless praises, the countless power, the countless blessings and worship that God provides. And regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what happens to us, our God is worthy of praise. And too often our our praise is limited to only when times are going well. We say, oh, thank you, God, when we get a good parking spot, or oh, thank you, God, the light stayed green and I'm not going to be late, or maybe when we find our spouse, we get into a little bit more special time of worship, or when we get the great job or the goal of our job and we take time to praise God, or maybe when we get a good diagnosis. When we be going to the doctor and they said things aren't well, then we find time, and only then do we find time to praise God. But the Bible teaches that we praise God in spite of our circumstances, not because of our circumstances. Our God's glory and His holiness demands our praise all the time. Right? We as Christians, we are to worship God for who He is, not because of how we feel at that moment. Our worship is driven by the Almighty God Himself. And when we do this, God uses our worship as a witness to his glory. Do you remember just a few months ago in December, we had a missionary that was here from China. Do you remember her story? Do you remember how she became a follower of Jesus? She was just a college student in China, and she'd become friends with a missionary family. She knew who they were, but she was not interested in their foreign religion. She didn't care the least bit. She had met these people, and they were friendly, and she valued their friendship, but she could care less about their religion. And when this missionary's family, when the young child, this little girl, drowned and died, she, as a friend, attended the little girl's funeral. And as the family walked to the gravesite that they had dug for her out in the woods, they worshiped God. They sang songs of praise and they told of their great God. In their grief, in the darkest day that this family had, they praised and worshiped God for who he was. And it was in this worship that this lady saw the power. She saw the glory and the holiness of God. And her life was forever transformed. Her heart was changed. And now here she is almost 20 years later going to parts in China we've never even heard about to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others so their hearts will be changed. She did all of that because she heard and witnessed other people's worship of God. You see, when we praise God in the midst of a storm, we are a wonder to a lost and dying world. And church, that is our challenge, is that we are to be a wonder in our worship to those that are looking at us. But when we look at these next few verses we'll see a second lesson that we can learn when we are trying to witness to the uninterested. In verse 27, it says, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And when the jailer... um, and the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open. 
he got scared, right? We know that uh, this was not a normal thing for prisoners to hang around. But if we're going to witness to the uninterested, we need to be selfless in our actions. Look what happens here. That he was awakened by the noise. This poor jailer, he rushes out and he finds all the cell doors open. This is not an encouraging sight for a jailer. According to the law, the, the code of Justinian, which the, the Romans fell under, escaped prisoners meant execution for the guards. If your prisoners escaped, you were executed. Period. End of story. If you remember, uh, back in Acts in chapter 12, uh, Peter and James were in jail. And James is executed. And Peter is awoken and he is led out of the jail by the guards. You remember what happens in Scripture. It says, and after Herod searched for him, referring to Peter, and he did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Right? When your prisoners escaped, you were executed. Assuming that these prisoners had fled, the guard prepared to fall on his own sword. This was going to be more honorable than facing execution. And then out of the darkness, he hears, stop. Right? Don't do that. We're, we're all here. And it was this selfless act of Paul that stopped the guard from taking his life. The stories that this guard had heard of these men being rebel rousers, of them being a problem, of them just being hooligans and trying to destroy the city, they didn't match what he witnessed. They didn't match their circumstances. The, these words, um, it, it, it didn't match their witness. And he got to observe who they were and see their selfless acts. And when we look at this, this is like the words of Peter being played out. When Peter wrote this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, on the day of visitation, we're not really sure what that means, and theologians fight over the two different things of what that can mean. Some think it means just the initial conversion of the believer. And so when they, they see your conduct and, and God transforms their heart and it points glory to God and they become a believer, that's the day of visitation. Others refer to it in the way in which those who became believers will glorify God on the last day. So not necessarily the beginning of your earthly uh, time walking with Jesus, but more when you are in heaven and worshiping Jesus. doesn't really matter because either way, hearts are transformed and people come to know Jesus and they came to know Jesus out of the demonstration of somebody's conduct, right? Somebody's actions God used to be a witness to the glory of God and, and God used that to draw people to him. God used that for people to give God the glory that he deserves. This is something that we've learned in life. In this world right now, when people see you acting selflessly, they ask questions. Right? People, when they see you acting selflessly, they begin to wonder. We were on a mission trip in South Sudan. I remember we we were at this farm, and we brought all this farm equipment. And a security guard from the South Sudanese army, he comes in. And he starts looking at all the material and tractors and everything that we had bought. And he says, I need to see the papers of this stuff. And it was worth a lot, a lot of money. It was like a lot, a lot of money. And he's looking at our papers. And the, the group that I was with, one of the things that they did is they would start farms. But in the contract, it says no money leaves the country that we're working in. 
There's no way that any of these missionaries or any of these groups or any of these professionals actually that come in get paid any money. And so this guy is looking at all of this paperwork and he looks at my, my team leader, his name was Scott, and says, what do you guys get out of this? And Scott shared the gospel with him. He said, I don't care about your religion. What's your return on investment? How much money are you making out of this? And Scott shared the gospel with him. And the next day as we were working, that same guy came back, and he had a lot more questions. What's your return on investment? How much money are you guys making? What do you get out of this? And Scott shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And he shared, and he shared, and he shared with him again and again and again. He told him about Jesus. We left, and we came back a few months later, and guess who was waiting at the little dirt airfield for us? Same security guy. Same questions. Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. Scott told him about Jesus. Told him about Jesus again and again and again. And Scott and this man, they became dear friends. And this man went on to become a follower of Jesus. And since, since he was 12, he was fighting this, this country's civil war and his nation's civil war since he was 12 years old. And he came to know Jesus and he goes on. He becomes a successful businessman. He's noticed as one of the greatest philanthropists in South Sudan. He selflessly is serving children and schools and communities that were torn apart by war. And as this fragile government that was just beginning, it was becoming corrupt. And they saw this man. He was gaining influence with the communities because of his selfless acts. And as they tried to downplay him, as they got nervous, as they were threatened by the influence he was having, and they would go out to the town and say things about him, the people in the town, the people in the community would point to his acts and say, that's not true. That's not who this man is. And just by the conduct of, his man, of this man, Jesus was shined light and the glory of God was shined in some of the darkest places in this world because of people following Jesus selflessly. Through Scott's selfless acts, the uninterested became interested. But not only did the uninterested become interested, the, interest, the uninterested now became a gospel spreader. A Jesus spreader became a part of the mission of telling everyone everywhere about Jesus. See, God uses our selfless conduct to be a light and to make the uninterested interested. But this is the key. This is the key that we learn next. Yes, we need to be a wonder in our worship. We need to make people question, how come we're always worshiping? Is our God that great? Yes. Yes, he is that good that despite anything I'm going through, I know that my God is holy. I know that my God is sovereign. I know that my God loves me. My God deserves worship. And yes, we need to be selfless in our actions. We need to make people ask, why are you doing what you do? Right? It's so much easier to share the gospel of Jesus when somebody comes to you and says, tell me why you do what you do. Right? When somebody opens up the door to say, hey, tell me about Jesus. And God uses our worship and our conduct to make the uninterested interested. But the key is found in the next verses. And I want you to read with me, beginning in uh, verse 29 of chapter 16. This reads, And the jailer called out for lights, and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. When we witness, 
right? If we are to be used as witnesses to the uninterested with our worship and our deeds, we need to be ready to share the gospel when they ask. We need to have a plan to share. I want you to look at how Paul responds to this jailer. The jailer's confused. He's trembling with fear, and he asks the most important question in his entire life. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This jailer, he had handled Paul and Silas' incarceration firsthand, and he had heard their songs in the night. His very own life was spared because of their selfless acts. His question was sincere. It was an earnest question, and the answer was simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Paul does not go and suggest this long system of things he must do or do not do. He didn't say, hey, there's this organization you have to change, you have to join. Hey, there's this religion or this special cult you gotta go be a part of. He simply said, put your trust in Jesus. That's it. Paul points to the jailer to the only thing that can save him. Faith in Jesus. We too often make this much harder than it really is. Right? When we talk about sharing the gospel, the first thing we start to do, we start questioning our theology. Like, do I really even know the gospel well enough to share the gospel? Right? We worry about our ability to speak the gospel in a clear and concise way, and we get really scared and nervous. We're even talking to kids. We're like, what if he's smarter than me? Right? Well, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. I haven't been a Christian that long. I've only been a Christian for 25 years. How do I know what I'm supposed to talk about? Right? Then we even start questioning, like, I don't even know if they're smart enough to understand the wisdom that I'm going to throw at them, so I might just hold on. You know? And then we, we get scriptural on and we say, God says don't throw pearls before pigs, so I'm just not going to share. But church, really, relax. It's not that hard. The power of the gospel does not depend on your presentation. Right? That's not where the, the power is not found in anything you say or don't say. Listen to what Paul wrote to the brothers in Corinth. Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in the churches in Corinth, and he says this in chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Too often, church, we try to share the gospel like my mom plays Pictionary. Right? If, if the phrase, for example, is car accident, my mom starts drawing the, the hospital, complete with the gift shop, complete with the flower shop, She starts drawing the TV crews that are going to cover the accident. She might get to the ambulance on its way to the accident. And as we're sitting there, my brothers, we're looking at what my mom's drawing. We're like, we have no idea. We're guessing hospital. No, that's not it. We're guessing all these things. So we look over at the other team like everybody does. And now we're just really confused because they got like cars running into each other. And we just can't reconcile what is going on here. And then when that last sand falls in the, the bottom of the timer... My mom looks at us like we're idiots. She's like, it was a car accident. And we're like, well, where's the cars or where's the accident? She's like, I was getting there. Like, it was coming. 
And this is how we share the gospel. We throw all of this stuff in there and all this, we're not sure what to say. We think we're like in a, taking a, a final exam in college and we're like, if I just put enough words in there, I might hit the right thing. So we just start throwing stuff in there. Here's what happens is the uninterested who had become the, uninterested, become the interested are now uninterested again. They can't follow what you're saying. They don't know what you're talking about. They lose interest before we get to the most important thing in the world. The good news of Jesus Christ. If someone asked you about the gospel, how would you respond? Right? What would you say? Too many times we sit as a church and we think, man, I wish somebody would just ask me the gospel. And then somebody asks us and we're like, I don't know what to say. Right? What would somebody say? How would you tell people about the power of the gospel? How would you tell people to put their faith in Jesus? How would you do it? I remember I was sitting taking this class on the gospel. I was with a whole bunch of these pastors, and we get that assignment. You got three minutes. How are you going to explain the gospel in three minutes? And pastors don't just think of simple things, right? We're thinking of all this stuff that we learned in the last seven years in seminary that we got to cram into a three-minute presentation. So we all write out all these statements that you got to have like a doctor degree to even understand the words that are being used in these gospel presentations. And the instructor starts moving from uh, person to person saying, okay, explain it to me. How what would your gospel presentation be? And I got to be honest, I was sitting there, I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. Like, I know the gospel. I've been to seminary, but I've never heard the words that they're using before. And they just kept talking and talking and talking. But there was this old pastor in the class, and it was his turn. And I remember the instructor comes up to him and says, okay, sir, you're in an elevator, and you got a Jesus t-shirt on, and the doors close, and the guy says, hey, how do I become a Christian? You got three minutes. Go. What do you say? And the guy just looked at the instructor. He says, um, just put your faith in Jesus. And the teacher says, well, that's obvious. How do you do that? He's like, follow Jesus. He'll teach you everything you need to know. And I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's way better. And I understand what he's talking about. Right? Just follow Jesus. Right? The, the Philippian jailer, man, he was saved that night by faith. And if his life, we don't know when his life ended, but let's say it extended over many months or years, he would discover in that time of frame of putting his faith in Jesus, of walking with Jesus, that being a Christian demands everything you have. It demands your entire life. But that night, that moment in time, that jailer knew that his salvation came through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Paul just said, put your faith in Jesus. We'll work out the other stuff later. Put your faith in Jesus. There you go. And it is this faith in a holy and loving God that leads us to worship when the world is mourning. We can still worship because our faith is in God. Right? It is this faith that leads us as Christians to serve when the world is demanding to be served. We don't stand out on our own. We don't say, serve me. We come like a humble servant with a towel around our waist to wash feet and to serve because of our faith in Jesus. Right? It is this faith and action that leads the uninterested to become interested in the grace that is found in faith in Jesus. And so this is the question. Is have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? Right? Have you just said, hey, Jesus, you have it all. Or are you still trying to add stuff to the gospel? Are you still trying to work hard enough or be smart enough? You're just throwing all of this stuff to try to add to the gospel. It's not going to work. Right? If, if that's what you're doing, you don't understand the gospel. 
It is the gospel. It is faith in Jesus alone. It takes nothing but faith in Jesus. Only faith in Jesus will save you. And so when we are talking to the uninterested, we don't have to worry about all the stuff they're not interested in. We just have to show them that our faith is a, is a real faith. We just have to show them that the way that we worship and the way that we act is simply because of our faith in Jesus to save us. Has Jesus saved you? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If he has called you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, maybe this morning, maybe sometime earlier this week, maybe sometime in the last month, but you haven't told anybody, tell them. Let them know. Let somebody know. Matter of fact, come up and see me or email us. I think there's an email on the screen up there somewhere. Yeah, e- email us. Tell a, a friend. Your life will never be the same. And we as a church family, we want to celebrate with you. Not just in, in heaven and, and when we die. We want to celebrate with you now and for the rest of eternity. So if you have put your faith in Jesus, you never told anybody, tell somebody. And let us, let us just worship alongside you and worship with you. If you've never made a public profession of faith, if you've never been baptized, then God has put that on your heart to take this initial step, this first step of obedience. So we want to talk about it with you. We want to walk that journey with you. We want to see what God is doing in your heart. We want to walk through this process with you of letting the world know that you are a follower of Jesus. That you have said, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am on team Jesus. We want to be a part of that with you. But church, here's the the deal. If you've been a long-time follower of Jesus, man, just allow your worship to be a wonder to those that are watching. Right? People are watching. Do people wonder at your worship? Do people sit back and say, how can they worship at a time like this? Somebody come to you and say, how can you worship at a time like this? And you get the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Right? If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you are following Jesus, I want to encourage you to continue to be selfless in your actions. Right? Play a little game with yourself and say, you know what, I'm going to be so selfless in my actions, I'm going to make this person ask me why I'm doing this because I want to tell them about Jesus. Right? We, we'll go buy tracks and we'll go meet people we don't know and then be afraid to do it, so let's turn around. Let's create the environment so they will come to us and ask us, why do you do this? And we can tell them about our faith in Jesus. And when that happens, church, let me beg you, be ready to share the good news of Jesus with all who ask. That's all. Just be ready to share the gospel. It is amazing what happens when we worship when times aren't good. It's amazing what happens when we selflessly serve people. How many people will come up and say, why do you do what you do? And we could tell them about Jesus. That's how we witness to the uninterested. Because guess what? You've had enough trouble in your life and you've lived long enough to know that there's going to be a time when you're in trouble, when you're hurting, when your heart is broken and you need help. And you need to go find somebody who knows Jesus and they will find you. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you just for this morning that we had just to come and just to worship with you this morning. Lord, we just pray you would continue to just work in our own hearts, Lord, and that we would just find ourselves lost in worship, in your glory, and in your power, and in your majesty, and in your holiness. No matter what life throws at us, because of you, we are more than overcomers. You have already won the victory, and we are your sons and daughters, and we worship you, and we worship you, and we worship you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to transform our hearts and that we would be imitators of you, that we would come to serve and not to be served. 
but somehow, Lord, your life and your love and your mercy and your grace would be somehow manifested in us and that we would be witnesses to who you are and to your glory, to this lost and dying world that you've given us the opportunity to be on mission with you in. Lord, we are so grateful for that, Lord. And Lord, we would just pray that we would just give our words over to you, that we would believe and that we would trust in your promises that you would give us the words to say. And all we would have to do is just open our mouths and praise your name and give glory to your son. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity we've had just to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and worship you together. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's powerful name of Jesus we ask all of these things and all of God's people said, amen.